Hello, and welcome to Talking With My Mouthful. My name is David Leet, and I'm the publisher of the website Leet's Culinaria. And today, I'm alone here at the mic. The reason is Renee, our beloved editor-in-chief, is all the way out there in her new home in Phoenix, Arizona. But in the future, you will be hearing from her and me as co-hosts. But today, though, I have a very special episode of Talking With My Mouthful. It's all about memoirs and writing memoirs. Many of you wonderful listeners have been following me as I work along on my memoir, sometimes trudging along on my memoir, and you've asked for some guidance on writing your own memoirs. That's why I've tapped memoirist and writing teacher Marion Roach-Smith, author of several books, including Another Name for Madness, which was one of the very first books to deal with Alzheimer's disease. And her latest book, which we'll be discussing today, is The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text on writing and life. Marion, welcome. Hi, David. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. It's great to have you here. And for everyone listening, I want you to know that I actually travel three and a half hours to go to Marion's workshop up in Troy, New York, a three-hour workshop, and travel three and a half hours home. So actually, it was seven hours in the car for a three-hour workshop. She is that good. We have a plaque in the room with your name on it. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> so I think the first question we should ask is, what is memoir? So memoir, I think the best thing to do is to distinguish it from autobiography. Mm-hmm. So I think of autobiography as a big story of your life, a big book-length version of your life. Mm-hmm. And this keeps us fairly simple. Memoir should be written from one area of your life. In other words, one area of your expertise. Mm-hmm. I'm a woman. I'm a mother. I'm a wife. I, brought, I live with a dog. I'm a writer. I serve as a trustee of my university. When I write memoir, I write from one area of my expertise at a time. That expertise may be as somebody who's the only person in the family who can get your mother-in-law to take her medicine. Mm-hmm. That would make a really great opinionator column in the New York Times, a piece of memoir. Mm-hmm. Maybe your expertise is the person who trains guide dogs for the blind. I don't want to hear about every dog you ever owned. I don't want to hear about every dog you ever saw. But I want to hear about your expertise. And looked at that way, it's very liberating. Because why in the world would I want to read your life story Mm -hmm. unless you're famous? Which is why autobiography serves such a great purpose. If you're Sonia Sotomayor, I know you became the first Hispanic Supreme Court justice. Right. I want to know about how hard it was to grow up in that little apartment. I want to know how, how you got that scholarship to the Ivy League. I want to know the small details... I want to run the laps with your little decisions because I know what your big ones were. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. So memoir is written from one area of your expertise at a time. That is, if you want anyone else to read it. Right. And you do. Yes. So with that one area at a time, that expertise you're talking about, how does a writer start getting into that from the outside? Well... The idea is that the book should be about something, Mm -hmm. or the blog post should be about something, Mm -hmm. or the personal essay should be about something. And that is one of those things that makes people look at me cross-eyed in my workshops. They say, yeah, it is. It's about me. And I say, well, no. No. It should be about mercy or patriotism or justice or the, the tenderness of um, of of patriotism, about how vulnerable we are when we're patriotic, or it should be about some large universal. And you go through your either decide to write about that because let's say July 4th is coming up or Labor Day is coming up and you've always been interested in what people do for a living. And you say, you know what? I'm going to write that piece I've always wanted to write. And it's going to be about the work we do and mm-hmm. the and the status we take from our work. Okay. Then you start thinking about, well, what have I got in my life that illustrates that? Mm-hmm. Not the other way around. Okay. In other words, you don't want to tell your life stories. You want to tell your life stories and put them in some kind of context. So I know why 
on this particular Sunday, I'm reading your piece in the New York Times, or this particular Thursday, I'm hearing you on NPR's All Things Considered, Mm -hmm. or this particular day, I'm reading this particular blog post of yours. It's supposed to be about something. Once you know what it's about, you can start packing and more to the point, unpacking. Because again, we don't want it all. We want you to make some very hard decisions so that you illustrate that theme in a way that makes sense to me. You have this wonderful... I call it a formula. You call it an algorithm. I do, because I almost flunked algebra. Okay, which was very <laughs> eye-opening to me when you said this, and I know that I... That I almost flunked algebra? No, that, that, <laughs> that you have this formula, this, yes. uh, this algorithm, because I was in your workshop, and I remember trying to do the algorithm based on your book, uh, and I, I failed miserably because I realized I had made a mistake. Talk about the algorithm and give some examples from books that are out there that we all know or even make up an example so we can go through that step with you and understand the algorithm. Okay, that's great. So the algorithm was devised when someone asked me if I could teach everything I needed to teach about memoir in one minute, Mm -hmm. which I don't like parlor games, but I said, oh, damn, sure I can. (laughs) So the algorithm is this. It's about X as illustrated by Y to be told in a Z. Mm-hmm. It's about X as illustrated by Y to be told in a Z. So you could know any of those three at any time to start your project. So you know, for instance, it's going to be told in a blog post. Right. Okay, we're a third of the way there. Don't you feel really, really good? <laughs> right. So you know that you're really interested in patriotism, let's say, because something's coming up on the calendar or it's one of those things that's always bugged you or we've just had some other national disaster and you want to write about patriotism. Mm-hmm. And you start thinking about stories from your life that may or may not tease out something that needs to be said about patriotism. Oh, well, I have a story. I used to ride on these floats in with my husband, who's the editor of a newspaper in upstate New York. And I used to have to wave to the crowd and wear red, white, and blue uniforms when I did it. But there was a time when I didn't want to ride on the float, and I refused to ride on the float. And somewhere between the day I first refused to do so and the day I stepped onto that float, something happened. Mm-hmm. Something shifted in me that allowed me to be comfortable in a red, white, and blue hat throwing candy to a crowd on the back right. of a float in Troy, New York. And therein lies a story about the comfort of patriotism and coming to a comfortable level with it. So it's about patriotism as illustrated by my story of coming to a comfort level with riding on the float, to be told, in that case, actually, it was a National Public Radio All Things Considered essay. So it's about X as as illustrated by Y to be told in a Z. Mm -hmm. So if we think about, um, it's funny, I I did this recently at at, uh, Chautauqua, the great Chautauqua Institute in upstate New York. Last summer I was teaching and I started this shtick and a woman actually got up and left. She goes, no! (laughs) Memoir isn't about anything. It's about me. It's supposed to be about me. And that's ridiculous. And I said, no, no. Now I'm really going to make you crazy because also all pieces of nonfiction are an argument. And that's when she really left. She actually said, that's ridiculous. I've never heard such nonsense. So let's take that apart a little bit. Okay. So think about the great Malcolm Gladwell, for instance. Everybody Mm -hmm. knows all of his books, you know, what the dog saw and the tipping point and the one about the 10,000 hours of practice, right? right? Yeah. So what's the one about the 10,000 hours of practice about? He's arguing that, hello, practice Mm -hmm. makes perfect. Old adage. All pieces of nonfiction argue something. 
including Memoir. Mm. Memoir argues, for instance, that perhaps patriotism is the delicatessen plan. Maybe you didn't say the Pledge of Allegiance when you were 13, Mm -hmm. but at 18, you've become comfortable enough with your own definition that you do. Mm -hmm. So you're arguing that it should be the delicatessen plan, and the guy next door with his 55 flags on his car and all of his, his... his bumper stickers is no more patriotic than you, but you're comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. So you're arguing something. You're using an about, an illustration, and you know what your piece is going to be published as if you want the support that this algorithm gives you. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? It does. It does make sense. I'm sitting here listening because I'm so wrapped by what you're saying because I know with my own book that I'm deeply into... I had to work on that algorithm over and over again because I knew that it was a book. That's the easy part. It would be told in a memoir, a book. But what was it really about? And Mm. it's about the search for the truth of self. What is it about me? What about these things that have been haunting me since I was a child? And then the... Then the what's the why part? It's about X as told as illustrated by as Y. Illustrated so by Y is my search through my life to try and understand what these things were that were haunting me. My search and my understanding and my acceptance of being gay, of having a mental illness, and also finally realizing how important food was in all of this. It's told in a memoir. And so it's a little bit more complicated, I think, than some people's memoirs because it does have three legs, you know, of a stool, if you will. Uh, But those are the three things that had haunted me from the very very beginning of my life. I never really had that down until I went to your class. Then I started understanding that there's a, a great arc to what I'm writing. Another thing you also talked about, though, is the ACT format, Mm -hmm. which was something that really blew me away when I was there. Can you talk about the ACT format? Absolutely. So all pieces of drama are three acts, and we have a problem, we have a cure, and then we live with the cure. Mm -hmm. So if we put this on your story, we have a problem of self-acceptance. Right. We have the backstory about where that problem came from. We have the opportunity for cure when we accept ourselves, Act 2, and then we live with the cure in Act 3. Mm-hmm. It's a not a gross generalization to say that you must break down your scenes into these acts mm-hmm. because otherwise you will go out of your mind. Yes, that's true. When you wake up at 3 in the morning and you think of a scene, a big vibrant scene of something that comes to you with color and texture and the dialogue is back and all of these things, I look at my argument, Mm -hmm. which is the closet pole um, of my mind, and that little thing that woke me up as something I can go and hang on that closet pole, not only in terms of a beat of my argument, but also is it an act one, act two, or act three experience. Mm And once you have that kind of structure, you will finish your book if you're doing a book length piece because you will never again wonder where does this go. The lack of structure is the thing that sends more writers to drink gin straight out of the the bottle bottle. than anything else because they, without a structure also, how are you ever going to finish the damn thing? When will you ever know that you're done? You're done when you prove your argument. Mm -hmm. You're done when your third act has completed that sense of 
calm or peace or cure, or even in those cases where nothing really gets resolved and somebody just shifts when it shifts. For instance, I recently, I do a lot of editing, private editing of manuscripts, and a woman had a story, and she had written a 450-page manuscript, and she sent it to me, and she'd had a child who had done 47 days in the NICU, the the neonatal intensive care unit, and then had died. She went and spent two years on the couch, literally on a couch, crying, and then one day she said, why did I let that happen? Mm -hmm. And so the last 150 pages of the book was her becoming this amazing advocate and doing all these speeches for changing the protocol for the NICU. I killed the last 150 pages of the book because now the book ends where she's stepping onto the podium to make that very first speech. The first one. It's all we need, right? Right. And I've asked her permission to tell that story, by the way. She knows I talk about her book because I don't talk about my clients. But isn't that thrilling? Yes. To know when it's over. Yes. And without a structure, you're never going to know that. I agree with that. And I know that you helped me break down my three acts as act one is who I was, which is where I came from uh, and how I was raised. Then the big second act is what who I tried to be and what I tried to be to overcome what I thought I was. And then the third final act is who I am. And so it really is almost this hero's journey of starting somewhere, realizing some things are amiss, and trying to shed everything that I had and realizing I shed too much. That some things had to come back and some things that I, I discovered along the way I wanted to keep that were new. And that's what ended up in the third act. So I know that by having those was a real eye opener for me because suddenly it was that closet pole that you talk about. And I know exactly where to hang that particular piece because it's an act one piece, it's an act two piece, it's an act three piece. And I find that very fascinating. So the, the other way to look at it is, and I see this is why I don't find your three themes so daunting mm-hmm. because they're all act two themes. Yes, they are. And so you can also, one of the ways I've I explained this to somebody recently is act two is all about the unless. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to always be this drunk, act one, unless I get sober. Right. Act one, act two, act three. Mm-hmm. And looked at that way, it makes this story manageable. Right. So as someone gets the structure all set up, the first act, second act, third act, they know what their algorithm is, then they start to write and write and write and write. And they're going off on tangents and they're taking left turns. And <laughs> David, <laughs> yeah. who are we talking about? <laughs> exactly. And they're suddenly realizing they're 50 pages into something which makes no sense and doesn't really work. How does a writer tell their story cleanly and leanly and know what to include and what not to include. Yeah. Well, first of all, you got to be comfortable with the vomit draft. Yeah, and yes. I know how much you hate that phrase. I do not You like don't like Annie Lamott's phrase, the shitty first draft, and you don't like no. mine, the vomit draft. I don't like some, anything that's messy. No, and you don't love anything that's messy. You want to hurl up yeah. all you've got in there. In the first draft. In the first draft, I use song lyrics, Mm -hmm. cliches, bumper stickers. Sometimes I will literally write, be funny here in the middle of the... 
Absolutely. Because I'll know inherently that right this minute I need to be funny, mm-hmm. but I can't be funny in a first draft. I haven't, right. I haven't got it yet. Right. I'm not even sure what's at stake yet. I just know that I'm making an argument for something. Mm-hmm. So I'll write, be funny here, or funny scene to come. Damn well better come, by the way. <laughs> I go stand by the mailbox for a few days and hope somebody <laughs> sends me one. But the idea is that you throw up everything you can think of that qualifies for this book's argument. Okay. Maybe not everything that ever happened to you in your life, because you're going to have to do a lot of unpacking if you do that. But literally, right. if you're writing about mercy, mm-hmm. you've got to remember you're planting the seeds of telling a tale of mercy. So stories that aren't about the acquisition of mercy or the questioning of mercy or how you acquired mercy are not going in this book. Right. So you're going to maybe put the word but whatever your book is about, on a little index card and slap it right to your computer screen so you can have a little guiding light there. Right. And then you're going you're gonna to vomit up this first draft, this vomit draft. Then you're going to go through, because all of writing is about rewriting. It's not about writing. There's mm-hmm. never been a good first draft of anything. I agree. And so you're going to get yourself a really big first draft, and then you're going to start sculpting down to prove your argument. And with that in mind, it's really not as much of a burden as it Mm -hmm. appears to be, Mm -hmm. especially if you're controlling yourself to just tell one story at a time, one piece of territory. I learned this from the great Caroline Knapp, and it's her book, Drinking, A Love Story, that I say to people when they say, well, what memoir should I read? I say, just read this one. Mm -hmm. The tone is perfect, the three-act structure is impeccable, and the story is remarkable. And now 24 years after she wrote it, it's still as good as it was the day I read it, and it teaches you how to write. Had she not died at 42, tragically young, she probably would have written seven or eight book-length memoirs. Her next one was called A Pack of Two, about her relationship with her dog. What Caroline knew is that you write from one area of your expertise at a time. So that being the case, after that vomit draft, you want to go in and just find the things that sculpt and support and illustrate your argument and start throwing everything out. And then I have a series of, of... of edits that I do to get me down to mm-hmm. the the page and length that I need the page length that I need it to be. So it's rewriting, 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 rewriting all the time. Talk about that example that you've used about writing about your mother, mm-hmm. and then realizing that you were going off in a different direction and thinking, what should I include and what shouldn't I? I thought that was a very useful example. Mm-hmm. So my, my as I was writing about my mother, who was forty nine years old when she got diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. She was, this is a long time ago, but um, what I discovered during the course of, of writing about her, and I was working at the New York Times at the time, and had taken on this assignment of being the first person to ever write about Alzheimer's disease in the popular press for a piece in the New York Times magazine. And during the course of writing that, I discovered she'd been having an affair since I was eight years old. Mm. Not only an affair, but an affair with my best friend's father. And they lived four blocks away. And everybody was still alive. Um, oh, so, what do you do? Well, run <laughs> if you can, <laughs> drink excessively. No, no, these are not <laughs> options when you're on deadline. So the idea is what goes in this book? Right. By the time Houghton Mifflin got to me after the magazine piece was published and they had given me this sort of assignment to be the first person to ever write about Alzheimer's disease, it became abundantly clear to me that we can't write a book about from the point of view of a young woman who's just discovered that her mother has Alzheimer's disease and has been having an affair with her best friend. Because just listen to me. That just runs off the page. You can just hear me pitching that to you, and you'd say, one or the other, sister. Yeah, exactly. So even though it happened, here's the golden rule of memoir. Just because it happened doesn't make it interesting. Right. And if you chant that sucker to yourself every single day, you'll know that mom's affair wasn't going in this book. Right. That's not lying. 
That's because Houghton Mifflin wanted me to write about a family's dramatic struggle with Alzheimer's disease. The, the affair, it's actually in my little book on memoir about how I found out at 22, my sister discovered it when she was nine. Mm-hmm. Neglected to tell me all those years, but right. that's another story. Right. And that's the thing. That's another story. So you have to remember, what are you writing about? What is your argument? What goes in? Now, my mother was also a heavy drinker, something that needed to be put in the Alzheimer's book because alcohol is a brain insult. But the book could not be written from the perspective of an adult child of an alcoholic because Mm -hmm. that's a very different narrator. Mm -hmm. And first and foremost in memoir, you must be a reliable narrator. And I needed to be as reliable as I could be. So what did I do? I went and I did reporting. Mm -hmm. Also something people don't think of as a memoir tool. Absolutely. I interviewed everybody I could get my hands on, including her friends. Okay. And from her friends, I learned about who she was when she was a young mother. So these are all aspects of memoir that people find very surprising because almost everyone who comes to me either online or in my classes thinks that memoir is about them. And it's not. Right. It's not. And they think just because it happened, it makes it really interesting. And that's not the case at all. So you mentioned your mom. What about writing about family? How, of course, that's difficult. Or writing about anyone who's alive. How do you deal with the ramifications? The things that I hear over and over again is how could you possibly write a book? Your parents are still alive. These people you're writing about are still alive. The one, my partner, is still alive. Right. How can someone write about people who are alive and, and be honest and not have lawyers come after them? Yeah. First of all, the truth is the best defense. Mm-hmm. The truth. Now, the truth means the truth according to you. Right. And why are you putting that particular story in the book? Does it, in fact, serve the purpose of proving your argument? Or are you just on a tear to get back at somebody? Memoir is not a blunt object to be used for revenge. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to read that book. I would argue that a much more interesting book would be a story about how you tried to get revenge on somebody and learned that revenge is a dull street to walk on. Right. And... A thankless task, absolutely. So what you do when you set out to write memoir about the living, and I must say that the dead are just as frightening to people as the living. Oh, yes. Although you can't libel the dead, which is really good news. Right. Um, Meaning that no one can sue you if the person is dead. But for the living, remember, what is your story about? What do I need to know about him? What do I need you to show me? And I need the truth from you. Mm -hmm. I don't need a vendetta. And I don't need everything. And you'll find that actually along those lines, stories are very beautifully told without treading on the getting back at somebody, without treading on libel, without treading on any kind of vendetta, or venturing into a place that's unsupportable in terms of your argument. So family will always do the following thing once your book comes out. This Mm. is inevitable. They will say, that's not how it happened. Right. And they're right. That's not, and this is the line you're now going to repeat after me. Right. You're right. You're right. That's not how it happened to you. That's not how it happened to you. That's how it happened to me. That's how it happened to me. Good, David. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So tell the truth. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And the truth is a very funny fish mm-hmm. because every family is a pizza, but you only get one slice. And it's not until you bring all the slices back to the pan do we have a complete pizza. And then even then, like my sister will, I'll tell a story. My sister will say, that never happened. Right. My sister still is convinced that my second grade best friend, Andy Hattenrash, right. is imaginary. Hattenrash. Hattenrash. <laughs> and I tell you, he's not. Right. We will never agree. And so what about memory? How do you... How do you cope with memory, good memory, bad memory? I mean, there's a lot of parts in my in my book where I go, I, luckily I have journals to go back to, to remind me of a lot of photographs. But what if you don't have that? What if you weren't writing that young? How do you go about reconstructing some of those memories? Or do you admit to having a vague memory at this point? The idea is that every interaction between two people had an intent, mm-hmm. has an intent. You wanted Christmas to be different that year. You were sad because it wasn't. You remember the intent of when you finally got old enough to say to your mother, I wish everybody didn't get drunk mm-hmm. and behave this way every single year at Christmas. You might have been about 16 mm-hmm. when that finally came out. But the years before, you probably hinted around at it or dodged it a bit or hid under the table. You may not remember what you said, but you probably remember what you felt. And so when I reconstruct a conversation, for instance, I will always say the conversation went something like this. Mm -hmm. And that allows you to reconstruct the intent of the exchange between two people without me feeling that you were taking notes when you were six, which you simply weren't doing. Of course not. So never mess with the intent of an interaction between two people. And the thing about interactions are they're wondrous. We're having one right now. We're right. looking each other in the eye. We're having a very intimate conversation about something that means the world to both of us. Right. But I'm going to leave here, and if I jump in a cab and forget all about this, which I won't do, right. but what if I just for a moment in the cab got my notebook out and wrote something down about what just transpired between the two of us? Mm-hmm. That could be a beautiful piece of memoir, mm-hmm. two people talking about the truth. Mm-hmm. So all interactions between people, even when you buy your daughter her first pair of school shoes in first grade, you're having an interaction with the person selling it. There's something going on. There's something going on with the one tonight when you go home. There's something right. going on with your cat. What we don't do is we don't ever take the time to sit down with our little notebook and write something down. When we do, you just need a couple of code words to reinvigorate what happened, Mm -hmm. the transaction. But when you don't have that, you have memory of how you felt. Mm -hmm. And maybe you felt a little, I don't know, privileged, or maybe you felt a little snubbed, or maybe you remember those feelings from high school, eighth grade, and from being eight years old. You remember when all around you, the adults were making decisions and you were powerless. Mm -hmm. You write, I would write that as that weird swirl it feels like if you're standing in the middle of the carousel Mm -hmm. and you see the horses going, you know how the middle doesn't move? Right. There you go. So write me the visual and tell me how it felt to be eight where everybody else is in control passing the platters of food, but you're just a hungry kid in the middle. And we'll say, oh, I know how that feels. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I know that one of the things that I've discovered is the more specific the writing, the more universal the appeal. Yes. And the understanding, which is very odd if you think about that. You know, I can write about being uh, a middle-aged gay man and suddenly I'm having a lot of other people understand what it is because I'm not writing about being a middle-aged gay man. I'm writing about mercy. I'm writing about revenge. I'm there working in a go. piece now about revenge. Uh, people can understand the themes and the ideas about it. And the specifics aren't really important. They almost fall away. It's sort of like the idea, 
at least I, I'm learning, not overwriting and over-describing a room or a person. Because if I start imposing so much upon you, suddenly in your mind, the room has got the door to the left, but I'm, t- I'm saying the door is to the right, and you're constantly getting stuck Absolutely. going, wait a minute. And so I find that that they, they all the specifics of the, the net essay or the piece drops away, and the themes are what really resonate and what continue and linger. You're illustrating your themes. Your details are currency. Mm-hmm. And when I enter your country, your book, mm-hmm. your blog post, your personal essay, your radio essay, your op-ed piece for the New York Times or the Connecticut newspaper, I enter your country, I trade in all my currency for yours, just like when you travel. Mm-hmm. And I want to spend every dime before I leave your country. And what I'm spending it on are the themes Mm -hmm. of your life that are going to prove your argument. I do not want to hear about the blue drapes unless there's some reason that that blue is important to what the story you're telling me. If you're telling me about being out in the Hamptons with some socialites living room and it's filled with majolica Mm -hmm. and it's got asparagus ashtrays and cabbages of you know made into uh soup tureens and it's got these coral drip and you want to give me the give it give me the over the top tell me about the riot of color don't just use the phrase riot of color show it to me so you i understand how either repellent or delicious it is to you right but make sure there's a reason it's there just because you remember it does not make it qualified for a piece in the memoir. And so your currency is so important. And that metaphor really works for me. I, I love that metaphor. I really do. I've th- I've thought about it a lot. And that one, you, you just don't want to bring those euros home with you. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. You want to spend them all there. And when I get to the end of your book, I should say to myself something along the lines of what you said to yourself when you figured out what your argument is. Mm-hmm. So when we get to the end of Wild by Cheryl Strait, right. we don't say, wow must be hard to walk in the mountains. Right. We don't say that. Right. We say becoming the woman that your mother said you could be is a hell of an adventure. Yeah. And we all wanted to be the people that someone we admired wanted us to be. Mm-hmm. Along the way, we may have lost our way, but that's what that book is about. It's growing into a role. Right. And so we want to say something about her argument to ourselves to have that deeply satisfying relationship with the book. As we will when we get to the end of yours. Right. Well, we're hoping. Such we're still a working. hope. <laughs> Such a hope. We're still working, but you know that's a work in progress. So let's, some of the people uh, who are listening are new memoirists or trying to be a memoirist. What are some of the traps that they can fall into and hopefully now they can avoid after hearing you speak? My favorite trap, because, and this is a hard one, mm-hmm. if you've ever had long hair, women particularly relate to this one, <clears throat> you know that when you wash your hair and you comb out from the top, if it's really tangly, the first couple of inches look really great and the rest looks like a rat's nest because right. you get bored. That's from going back and editing your first or second pages so many times and then letting the rest of your stuff just be hellish. Right. So don't edit. Write Open the tourniquet and bleed all over the page for some number of pages until you have a first draft. Do not continue to go over paragraph one or else that thing is going to be shiny and new and the rest of it will not get that kind of attention. The other thing is to never, ever, under any circumstances, for any reason at all, share your work with someone who you depend on for food, sex, or shelter. There's one thing that they're going to (laughs) say, or two, they're either going to say, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. At which point, what are you going to do? Right. You're living with the person. Right. Or they're going to say something like, neat, 
at which point you're going to have to kill them. (laughs) So that's not helpful. Mm -hmm. If you can get yourself into a place where other writers live or work or writing group, the rule of thumb is there must be people in that room who are invested in your success. I've been in other rooms where people rip each other to shreds and there's no value to that. No value. And so you need support. Nobody should do this alone. Nobody should show it to the spouse or the boyfriend or the girlfriend or the partner or anything like that. Mm. And you really want to have an intelligent reader. The other trap is people who just read memoir. Oh, dear God, stop reading memoir. Read The New Yorker every week. Read over your head. Read theater reviews. Theater reviews talk about always good theater reviews, talk about what the play is about. Mm -hmm. That's going to remind you all the time Mm -hmm. to go about looking for your theme. Oh, God, I got so caught up in the plot, I forgot to think that play was about that strange moment in a woman's life where she realizes I can no longer depend on my beauty or my wit, but now it is this. Or I can no longer depend on my beauty. Let's say just that moment where she says, where she realizes that men aren't looking at her the way they once did. Mm -hmm. There's a moment, it happens in every woman's life, where things shift from this to that. Oh, it's about that moment? I have that moment. I remember the first time a guy looked at his watch when he was talking to me instead of looking at me while I'm talking pure gobbledygook and yet he's going, oh, you're so interesting, right? Right, A moment. So... Read theater reviews. Read, read, read. Do not read memoir. Those books were written several years ago. They were conceived of several years ago, even if they're brand new. And you want to keep away from just reading memoir. Um, other other problems I think people run into is just the dread. Yes. Who would want to go back there if it's about fill in the blank? Right. Your alcoholism, your unfaithfulness, your propensity for um, heroin, sleeping with strangers, this, that, and this. Well, that's not what the book is about. The book is about redemption or faith or patriotism. The scenes you have to go back to, you have to go back and just choose the ones that are going to work. Books have to be cumulative experiences, meaning that chapter one has to be there for me to understand chapter two. So try to deal with the dread head on and say, I'm just going back for the goods. Right. I'm going to be all right. Right. Um, And I think that's something that's really uh, keeps a lot of people from writing. And the other thing that keeps people from writing is thinking that they don't remember. And the fact is we've we've dealt with that. You want to tell us about the interactions and you want to say when you don't remember something. And then you want to take a good cosmic paragraph and write for me what it's like not to remember. Mm -hmm. Don't let that be the reason you don't write it. So when someone is having the dread, what writing exercises or prompts would you recommend for them? <laughs> None. <laughs> writing exercises and prompts were designed by people who do not want you to compete with them on the bookshelf. <laughs> okay, writing exercises and prompts were designed to steal what few minutes you have every day. Mm-hmm. They are dead ends. They do nothing to hone your talent. Mm-hmm. They are the world's worst crime against writing. And you do know this is incredibly controversial, what you're saying. (laughs) And I could care so much less than that. Yeah, no, those are terrible things to do. If you want to write for National Public Radio's All Things Considered, study the form.
perform and write for it. Right. If you have an area of expertise, as I said, and you have many, you have a hundred. Mm-hmm. So you want, and you know that it's, um, let's see, Labor Day is coming up again, or uh, Halloween is coming up again, and you have this thing about, oh, you've got this great story about uh, Halloween when you actually came out. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe you came, oh, maybe there, something, there's something happened that was great and it happened around Halloween or it happened at a party. You study the place that you want to publish that and you learn that form and you hand them a piece that fits their form, fits their word length, and you do your homework. Mm-hmm. You don't just do prompts and exercises. That won't teach you a thing. Right. The op-ed pages of the New York Times, the op-ed pages of your local newspaper, they're dying for your work mm-hmm. about why you garden, why gardening makes you happy, or why you don't inoculate your child, although everybody should, mm-hmm. or why living with a cat is better than living with a dog. Right. And when I say that, people say to me, oh, that's not really worth, I mean, who, who could, why would you write about your dog? How many copies did Marley and me sell? Exactly. 127 million in pack 28 languages, pack of two. Yeah. What is writing, what is um, Marley and me about? It's about what the dogs do for people, what people cannot do for themselves. It's right. not about the story of a bad dog. It's right. about what dogs do for people. And once you realize that, eh, you can write. Because I think that this idea of what a book is about is so powerful because I think it suddenly puts an end to and then. And then, oh, and then. Absolutely. Because you're not just trudging along saying one thing happened after something else because you now suddenly have an organizing principle. If it is about mercy, if it is about the search for the truth of self, which mine is, then suddenly only those things that belong in there go in there. Exactly. And then it starts propelling the narrative forward right. as opposed to just getting plotting, which is the death, I think, of any memoir. Sometimes you read it and you go, I am so freaking oh my God. bored. Right. And even in the worst abuse memoirs, there's only so many times we can watch a violent act. Yes. Books are cumulative. If what you're saying is that he beat the hell out of you every day, you got to give me the one scene where I learn everything I need to know about that. I cannot watch repeated scenes of abuse in the same way I can't just watch you drink and then drink and then drink and then drink. You have to either show me it getting worse and then it getting better Cumulative. We have mm-hmm. to move along the timeline. So you have to choose well from your scenes mm-hmm. and choose the ones that let me see, here's the word, transcendence. Yes. Something has to happen. Even if the only thing you do at the end of that book is step up, up to that podium to mm-hmm. make that speech about those children's protocol in the hospitals, like I referred to before, mm-hmm. or even if all you do is say at the end of the book, you know what? I'm going to leave the son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. That's transcendence. But we cannot watch you do the same thing. If what you did is the same thing for 25 years, you got to give me just one paragraph saying, I just did that for 20. So for 25 years, that's what I did. But then, and move on. Right. The, the way I know people are going to get into trouble every single time in my classes is when they say, I'm working on volume one of my memoirs. Oh, my. Oh and I my. say, hold the phone, <laughs> stop the ship, let me tell you something. Right. Uh-uh. Yeah. It's not the story of your life. Now, it's lovely when people write the story of their family for their family, but I think we need to carve that off and call that something else. Right. And that is a terrific thing to do. It's the greatest gift you can give to a child or a husband. That's a lovely, lovely thing to do. We're talking about the literary form here. Right. We're talking about getting published in the popular market. We're talking about illuminating someone else, Mm -hmm. and that requires transcendence. Yeah. Now, one of the other things I think a writer will fall into, the trap I fell into, was writing about people, other people, 
but not understanding the role they play in the piece. Mm. And that was one of the comments you had about someone in my my book. You're saying, I don't understand the role she plays. What does she represent to you? I've now since understood what she re- represents to me, but talk about that, the idea of, of people who populate your piece, the important people who populate your piece, really have roles. They play roles. Or they don't be, deserve to be in this memoir. Right. And that's just it. She may have been there by your side the whole time mm-hmm. while you're learning this, mm-hmm. while you're discovering that you're not only gay, mm-hmm. but you're gay for life. Right. <laughs> <laughs> It's not a face anymore. <laughs> it's not an act. Right. Right. And so she, what did, what effect did she have on that? What did she, did she provide for you a mirror to look into? Mm-hmm. Did she provide for you the Greek chorus? Was she your moral conscience? Was she the person who you hoped you could be with instead of being gay? Mm-hmm. You have to write that because right. otherwise she just looks like this shadowy figure in the book. Exactly. We can't keep that many people straight. They have to, they have to provide some illumination of your theme. Exactly. Some illumination of your theme, or else why are they there? And that to me was an eye-opener, because suddenly I went through and I saw, what does this person represent? What does that person represent? And I then started depopulating my draft, because I realized there are too many people here. And sometimes there are just people there who are, a, who are good for ambiance. They're showing some ambiance of what's happening, but they're, they don't really... They're not supposed to come forward. They're meant to just step one step forward out of the shadows. Mm. But the ones who come into the spotlight, I realized they have to play a role. And what are those roles? And I had to, like I've done with everything, I had to start asking myself, what? What is it? What roles do they play? The same way, what is this chapter accomplish? What is this chapter about? What are these 10 scenes in that chapter about? And do these 10 scenes add up mm-hmm. to what that chapter is about? And that chapter and everything prior to it, do they all add up? to what my theme is, which is what I learned from you. So it's sort of like this, it's almost like a, a vision board, if you will. You know, For like, many people, literally, I have students that write it out on a vision board. Yeah. They, they illustrate it, clouds and arrows, and it would drive you crazy. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> you would want to straighten those arrows right I would. Up. <laughs> I'd want them all perfectly parallel to each other. So I use Scrivener, which breaks it up into index cards, and those index cards are put on bulletin boards, and they're color-coded, and it's all that works for me to be able to know that. And it gets everything very straight and even for me. And that makes sense. What I take... I take an old uh, legal folder, Mm -hmm. the manila folder, I open it up lengthwise, Mm -hmm. and I write across the now top horizon what the argument is, Mm -hmm. and then I divide it into three columns, act one, act two, act three, and I stick that thing under the light fixture that faces me at my desk, and there's my argument, and I'm looking at it all the time, and if it's not going to prove that argument, that scene is not going in this book. I have one up there right now, something I'm trying to write, Mm -hmm. and it looks at me every day, and I look at it, and I scribble on it, and I take it down, and I erase stuff. Yes, you want to have some kind of functioning place to, to report to. Yes. Some people use a cork board with index cards. Cork is hard to come by. I defy anyone to tell me where they can get a cork board these days. Right. So I use these old pieces of manila folder. You know, do something, but have a place to absolutely write it down, to structure it. Structure is is positively the only way to survive writing a book-length piece. But I use a structure. I don't use an outline ever, but I use structure even if it's a short piece. Mm-hmm. I try to make sure that my each paragraph is heightening and adding to my argument. Right. And then the conclusion coming Yeah. in the end. So I'm sitting at my desk. I'm sitting down for the first day to start writing my memoir. What should I do 
at my desk? What should I do daily since you don't believe in writing prompts? What is my practice, according to Marion Roachsmith? Well, this is the one I learned from Ernest Hemingway. Mm -hmm. Always stop the day before at a place where you know what you're going to say next. Mm -hmm. I mean, don't make this hard. Right. My God, it's hard enough to stay alone in a room. I've been at this since 1983, alone in a room, written four books and countless magazine pieces and blog posts and all of that. So to me, it's I show up. Never, ever, ever put anything on your writing desk that looks like anything but writing. So no taxes. And even if you live, and I lived in a tiny little apartment in New York, I had this one part of my desk that was just for my writing. So you have to show up at a place that says to you, okay, all right, muse, okay, girls, all right, whoever, (laughs) dead relatives, I don't care who, it's the soul of your dead cat. Whoever it is that's going to show up and help you, that brain process, that muse calling happens. And Mm -hmm. your subconscious says, oh, dear God, we're back at the writing desk. And so make it available. To me, the only little sign in my entire office just says, be hospitable. Mm -hmm. And if I can be hospitable to my talent, the rest really will. David, I'm telling you the truth. Take care of itself. That's a wonderful place to end. Marion, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. You know, I always learn so much when we get together, and perhaps we'll have another podcast soon. Thank you, David. Marion Roach-Smith is an essayist and also author. Her latest book is The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text on writing and life. You can find out more about Marion on her website at marionroach.com. I'm David Leet. Thanks for listening. Until next time, please do not listen to your mother, because we think talking with your mouthful is a perfectly wonderful thing to do. <laughs>